So I'm happy uh, to be here with you. As I mentioned, um, tonight I want to talk about Shanti Deva, and this teacher and the teachings, and for a few reasons in the last uh, few weeks. I'm, not, I'm sure all of us have had a bit of an up and down. <laughs> and on November 11th, yeah, November 11th, I was teaching in downtown Oakland. And I, we're on our corner of 17th and Harrison, so right downtown at our center, East Bay Meditation Center. And on Thursday nights, there's a community for communities of color. I started that group 10 years ago. And on that night, 200 people came in. And there was a lot of emotion. In fact, some people had been doing yoga earlier and set all the fire alarms off when they were doing Breath of Fire. And, and so when I arrived, too, there was helicopters everywhere and police everywhere. And there was a riot happening maybe a block away. And so I sat down, and, and it was so hot. We, we opened the windows. This weird heat was coming. I think it was just emotions and, and everything. And so then tear gas started coming in, though. And I could hear the police on the bullhorn, stop your vehicle, stop your, you know, just getting, it was just kind of, was a nice peaceful time. And then it turned, as the night went on, it started to get violent. And um, people were, uh, a lot of people there. So there I was sitting there as I sat down and there's these 200 people there and a lot of emotion and the police. (laughs) I could hear it all. (laughs) And I was like, so here we are in the middle of a riot. And uh, I started to really reflect on what does it mean to be a bodhisattva? What does it mean to be in the middle of life in all, right in the chaos and try to actually bring some kind of clarity or bring some compassion or do something that alleviates the suffering in that moment that doesn't heighten it, that brings it down and only wisdom can do that only truth can do that only compassion can do that so as I was meditating before giving a talk and I could feel the energy and hear the emotions and see people's faces and I I started to think about that as like wow you know this is such an opportunity because I might have many nights like this now (laughs) I thought maybe those days the you know my oh that was my ancestors (laughs) No, this is opportunity for everybody to work with challenges. And so I don't have to say more about that side. I think the important thing is that what can we learn and what can inspire us now in our practice, in our Dharma practice? How do we hold this? And where is there refuge? Where do we take refuge? So I was lucky enough, I have this book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, um, that was composed by Shanti Deva in the 8th century. He was a monk, an Indian monk. This was actually one of the first books that I ever bought. I have a huge library at my house of Dharma books. This one was one of the first ones that I bought. And I didn't even really know what it was about. And it's very difficult to read if you think you're just picking up a book about stories. It's written in stanza form because in, 
was composed, they didn't have paper, so they would use these stanzas, these open, loose-leaf pieces of paper. So it's compiled uh, in that way. And I didn't understand it, and I studied this text for years. And like all dharma, all good uh, Buddhist books, dharma books, they're timeless, because if you pick them up at any time, they're new for you. They should be new, because in that moment, we've changed. So every time I come back to this book, it's as if I never read it. <laughs> you know, so I've probably read it 50 times. I've gone to teachings all over the world, received transmissions from the Karmapas, Holiness, the Dalai Lama, uh, all kinds of Rinpoches. <laughs> you know, those great Rinpoches. Uh, and... I've looked at it at different times, but it's been a while, so I came back to it. And the reason I came back to it was because I got um, an audio version of Pema Chodron's commentary on this text called No Time to Lose. And the commentary, I started to listen to it for hours and hours, and it was as just reminding me. Then I went back to look at the core text. But her commentary, No Time to Lose, is basically... Line by line, she goes through it, giving commentary. It's a a very profound teaching, actually. Um, And she wrote that book over a decade ago, believe it or not, but it's as if it's right now. Every single comment in that, wow, Pema, she was on to something there. And so I just wanted to share some of this along with some some teachings also that I think will be inspiring And the word bodhisattva, um, you know, it's a compound word, and bodhi means awakened. I love the word bodhi, actually. Make sure I don't get the microphone, too. Um, I love the word bodhi, actually. Awakened mind, awakened heart. It's a little bit... Let me put this up here. Awakened heart... Spiritual awakening, it means enlightenment. Safa is a word that means being or essence. Spirit is another word I like. So when you put it together, bodhisattva, enlightened spirit. Also, sattva is translated a lot to mean hero, that word. So enlightened hero, that's another word. And Shantideva is an interesting character when I was in India on pilgrimage, I went to the ruins of Nalanda. And Nalanda was, in the 8th century, this great university. All these amazing scholars, Atisha and uh, Naropa came out of there. All these really beautiful teachers studied. And it was kind of a, a heyday, you could say, in the 8th century. It's a huge turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And many um, very beautiful teachers and teachings came out of that. And Shantideva was one of them. He was born wealthy prince, was heir to, you know, it all. And as many renunciates at that time, he gave it all up. He had a vision of Manjushri, which is an archetype of uh, wisdom, and then Tara, of compassion. And they, they came to him and said, do not lead a normal life, go ordain. And so he went off and did that. But at Nalanda University, there was thousands and thousands of practitioners, mostly at that time monks, only monks there. And he was hated. 
He was not liked. People thought he was lazy, irresponsible. There was a, a in the book he writes that they said to him, he, perf- he, he perfected the three great perfections. Sleeping, eating, and shitting. They were like, that's what they used to tell him. You have no wisdom. You know nothing, right? And he would giggle and laugh, and he didn't come to the classes, and he didn't do all the prayers. And so... How the or and it's important. I wanted to give you the origin of this teaching. Why did it, where did it come from and who gave it is important actually. And he, one day they invited him to give a big lecture. They actually wanted to embarrass him, so they invited him to give a big lecture in front of the whole school. And they thought, wow, here he is. And so he gets up on the throne, and uh, he said, okay, everybody, I'm going to give you a talk. And they all laughed, you know. And then he gave this whole brilliant teaching. And then they say after he gave it, he elevated, basically, on his seat and did some magic and then left. They didn't see him after that. And this text came out of it, right? This, this text. And this text also was, I was um, very inspired by it because the Dalai Lama had said he reads it every day. And he says the prayers every day. And when asked what is his most precious text, he says, oh, the Bodhisattva way of life, of course. And that stood out to me a lot. And I went to uh, hear a teaching in New York where he gave on this text for many days. And um, also on emptiness and compassion. And again, that was a long time ago, and I didn't understand everything he said. Most of people don't, actually, by the way. We just like his good heart. We're like, I don't know what he's saying, but it's something about be nice. I like that. <laughs> you know, because sometimes he talks and he'll use poly language, Tibetan words, English. He'll, he'll, he'll weave it all together and, and you have to really, you know, I, I'm better now, now that I, I've studied a lot more, but back then I didn't have a clue. But I got that it was about helping people. It was a life devoted to service. That resonated. I was already doing that. It was already natural. I had been doing that since I was a child. So it's also to understand the importance of this particular text. This is a Mahayana text. And, um, you know, in the Dharma, there's been these three great turnings. Now we are, classically, we are now calling it the fourth turning. That's what Joanna Macy, myself, others, some ecologists, some quantum physicists, even the fourth turning involving quantum, right? Science and earth and another wave is happening. But the first turning of the wheel was where the Buddha basically woke up in Bodh Gaya, and they said uh, when he went to go teach from Bodh Gaya, he went off to Sarnath, was walking, began to teach, ran into his friends that had, uh, he had known, and they say that the wheel turned and the earth quaked in four directions as he expounded the, the four noble truths, the causes of suffering and how to end suffering. So that, that set in motion a wheel And at that time, that wheel was about self-liberation. That was one phase of the truth as it unfolded. And then there was a second turning. And the second turning involved the whole birth of the Mahayana, these other texts coming forward. 
and the rising of, you know, in Japan and China and this turning into another level. And that was about, instead of the individual focused on liberation, personal liberation, the second turning was about benefiting all beings. So it went from I to we. Then there was a third turning that happened, and that involved Tantra and Vajrayana and the more of the shamanic side. There you have the Talopas and the Naropas, you know, crazy wisdom school, people in boneyards, naked. And, and what that was about and was embracing everything as the path. No good, no bad, no right, no wrong. We don't need to get rid of anything. We need to just open to it as, as it is, using everything. So that's a non-dual school, you could say. No duality, no good, no bad. Up until then, it was still right, wrong, we like this, we don't like that. So it was a third turning there that happened that was very important. So the fourth turning, we could say, is an even a bigger expansion where we are now, where we don't only include all beings, we, c we include everything. All that is as part of the great turning. So the, the earth, right? And all the understanding of what uh, scientists and ecologists, have you heard the phrase wood wide web? Right? Brilliant work being done. It's just very, it's so touching, especially some of these scientists and ecologists who are studying forest and how the forest talks to each other, right? And how they discovered there was these trees. They did this research up in um, Oregon where the forest, where some sick trees were being healed by the well trees. And they were sending it all through the fungi underground. And as they began to look at it, they went, oh my God, it's a system of all the whole forest working together. It's all talking to each other. And it's so brilliant. Right? And so with this wave of understanding, we start to see that not only are we connected to all beings, but we are connected infinitely to the earth. That our body is elements. We are only the elements. Water and air and fire and wind and all this. So of course we would be connected, but you see it's another turning of that wheel. So this particular text fits in with that Mahayana view for the benefit of all beings. And not only for the benefit of all beings, this view of the Bodhisattva includes everything. Nothing left out. Right? No being left out. No insect left out. We live our life uh, for the benefit of all beings. And also there's a specific thing that's unique to this. The view of the Bodhisattva, which is so powerful, is it uses that vow as a way to quicken awakening itself. It says, I will attain enlightenment as fast as I can so that I can be of benefit to all, all beings. Because what happens is they think about it and say, well, how could I help the most people? Well, Buddhas help a lot of people, <laughs> right? You think of this, what Gautama did. You're here now because of that teaching 2,500 years ago. On some level, there is a connection there to you, to this exact moment in time. So they think, well, wow, being a Buddha, that's pretty good. I can help a lot of people as a Buddha. 
So they vow to become Buddhas to help. So the vow itself becomes the motivator and it becomes an expedient because this quality of bodhicitta, bodhicitta is that desire to be of benefit. It's a quality, is in itself the mind of Buddha, they say in the Mahayana text. So you aligned your own mind with the mind of a Buddha. And if you think about it, what else do Buddhas want to do? Alleviate suffering of all beings, right? Why? Because they recognize the interconnectedness. If one person suffers on some level, we all suffer on on one level. And that's important to distinguish. So this guidebook lays out a lot of different things, a lot of practices, a way to hold the mind. And for some people, the idea sounds completely insane. One of the vows in here is, beings are are measureless. I vow to save them all. How do you... What? (laughs) You know, beings are numberless. That's it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Now, I want to also lay out how this fits into emptiness and, and form. So let's just look a little bit about the two truths because that used to be a mind bender for me. How do people say that? <laughs> you know, what about me? I can't even deal with my credit card bills. How am I going to save all beings? You know, I would have that thought when I was younger. Like, I don't even, I have my own trauma. I can't figure this out myself, you know. Um, So it's important to realize that these Mahayana teachings also fit within the two truths. So there's two truths that the Buddha expounded that are important to look at. There's one truth that says, we're all made of light, (laughs) right? So somebody sent me a beautiful picture and it said, it was a picture of a star. And I said, here you are a million years ago. You and I, I recognize that. I was like, Yeah, yeah, look, here I am, here we are, here everything is, right? Not just me. So, so the, we could say the ultimate view is we're all made of the elements, we're made of the universe um, on the quantum level, right? If I was to look at this really closely, there's actually nothing here, it just appears, it's very, it's, it's just tiny, tiny particles moving very quickly, right? And it congeals together and it makes what we'll call a striker. At some unknown point in time, this just disappears completely. Where it goes, we don't know. Dissolves again into like everything, you know? And so there's nothing really here, right? So that, that's the ultimate level, you know? So big, if you think about it, vast, this kind of teaching. But there is the conventional level. The conventional level is if I hit my leg here, I go, ow, it hurts. This is where I feel suffering. So there's something really here on the conventional. You can't just live in the ultimate reality. Do you know those people who live in the ultimate reality, how they go around going, everything is everything? (laughs) Who cares about the polar bears? Right? It's all changing. Why pay our bills? It's a concept. It's a construct of people. You know, it doesn't even relate to me. There's no compassion in that. There's that, that. It's only half the story. Yes, that's one half of the story, right? It is all a construct. But the other half is there's something here, right? There's something that has to be tended to on the conventional level, right? 
the conventional level, we say this is spirit rock, right? We'll pretend it's seven o'clock. We'll, we'll make that up. We'll say I'm spring and you're you. But we know that that's also kind of a construct too, right? If I get too fixated in that construct, I get lost in the suffering here and I can't open to this is vast truth going on. I have to actually hold this one level with the backdrop of a bigger level. And that's where uh, Shanti Deva is speaking to these two places of vast space of beings are numberless. I can save all of them. And then here we are on the conventional level. So it's a, it's a challenge to uh, open to this on, on one level. So compassion really fits into this. And I wanted to um, uh, talk a little bit about that because the idea of wanting to alleviate suffering is at the heart of a bodhisattva's view. And alleviating suffering and then saying, I'm going to go about training in it. I'm going to train my mind. And what we train in is the six perfections, called the six paramitas. In Theravada, we add four more onto it. We add the Brahma Viharas, we add love, we add truthfulness, we add equanimity, and we add uh, metta. But what we do is we train in these six. And I just want to mention the training of the Bodhisattva, what we train in. And interesting enough, as I was reading the text, it's, you go line by line, you go in a uh, linear fashion. So the first training is generosity. And what's interesting is that in Asia, they don't often want to give you teachings. They just want to tell you about generosity for a long time. <laughs> they're like, first, you know, so a lot of Westerners, are, Westerners go over there and like, give me the secret teachings, the high teachings. And they're like, no, first we're going to tell you how we earn, you know, how we beg, how we go get alms, how we, you know, and people are like, well, why do I have to know this? But there's something that's really important about the ground, in order for you to plant a seed, you have to have the right ground. If the earth is dry and barren, you could put the best seed in the world into it and get nothing. It will die. The ground of our minds and hearts have to be right. They have to be juicy. Juicy with what? Compassion, generosity, kindness. If, they, if you don't have that, you're like a boat tied to a dock. You go nowhere. And you can fight and row as hard as you can. And I have seen this for years at Spear Rock. In my teacher training, I sat in thousands, I felt like, of meetings, listening to yogis in deep states of one-month retreats, two-month retreats, sometimes three months. Those who had very little love and compassion, they were not progressing on the stages of insight. It was just like a wheel. It would be the same report. And we would talk about that. I would say, there many, wow, these people, this person, 20 years. And then the teachers would go, I know. I've been saying the same thing. And we said, this is alarming, actually. Like, this, is, this person has all the sincerity in the world. But if the heart is not open, you, you, need, you need these qualities. This isn't just hippie, hippie talk. You actually do need to understand interconnection. It's insight. It's not like, oh, we're all one. Yeah, uh-huh. It's actually wisdom. And it's the kind of wisdom that cracks the heart. When you have an insight into all beings, 
I am connected to this. You change how you walk on your planet when you get that, when you see that, when you have insight into that. It changes you. You are sensitive to the person next to you. You become attuned. People are no longer strangers. You refer to them as brother, sister. <laughs> yeah? Auntie, friend. You know, when I travel around the world, people often would call me auntie, sister. I used to love that. Why? Because that means we're family. And reckon it's like, yes, yes. So I got into that too. Hello, auntie. Hi, friend. To strangers in stores, wandering in South America, India. It didn't matter, Nepal. You know, and the moment you refer to someone as a friend, you know what they would do? They would soften their whole stance towards you. They would look at you and go, okay, yes, you're right. You know, even in a business transaction, it would make them pause, right? They would feel the softness in that. So the Bodhisattva uh, trains in generosity and they train in ethics. They train in patience. This is what I want to highlight tonight. Patience and enthusiastic perseverance. <laughs> I have not felt that enthusiastic the last few weeks. In fact, I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. I just felt fear. Like, can I meet the child? What am I supposed to even do? You know, and we've been having many gatherings here at Spirit Rock to talk about this. We had a very powerful teacher meeting where we invited all the elders and um, everybody, the founders of Spirit Rock and uh, we had a truth mandala to just express our emotions. And most of our emotions was around people are looking for me to help. Each teacher saying that. Wait, what do I, 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 okay, wait, this is really hard now. I can do this. And everybody was finding their way, you know, to, to rely on the wisdom that they have, to have confidence. So, enthusiastic perseverance and then concentration and then wisdom is the sixth one. So the patience, Shanti Deva's book, I would say a third of it is patience. We don't really like patience, right? When someone says be patient, it's a grounds to fight with them. <laughs> what do you mean be patient? We don't hear that as wisdom at all. Tibetans are different. When you say be patient, they go, okay, I can practice this. Right? It's like an opportunity to practice. And what we need right now is patience, actually. And enthusiasm for the work. The beautiful thing also about the Bodhisattva path is they love obstacles. In fact, Shanti Deva goes, love my enemies, I love my obstacles, I love. Why? Because that's how a Bodhisattva grows through the obstacles. So this reading that has given me a lot of courage and to take confidence, you know, to have confidence. I love this quote by the Lakota. They say, I see a time of seven generations when all colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life and the whole world will become one sacred circle again. I just have hopes, a lot of hopes, and my hopes I feel that are grounded in something more powerful than anything else, and that is truth. That truth of love and compassion wins. I don't know how long it's going to take. That's the dilemma, right? It could be in my lifetime, could not be. 
But who cares? Because the Bodhisattva doesn't care about that. All they say is go. Use the suffering. Use the drama. Use the fear. Use the panic. Use the violence. Use the hatred as your own way to look at your mind. And that's radical, isn't it? We stop trying to get rid of things. See, that's also a big, I feel, a dilemma with the Western community. There's two things I feel that holds back practitioners here a lot. One is they want to be comfortable while they're in their awakening process. <laughs> comfort. Spirit Rock provides a lot of comfort <laughs> in a lot of levels. And I think comfortable, who can be comfortable? You know, when we try to, I need this, I need that. I got, you know, just to be on a retreat, there's a long list of needs just to be present, right? And also the desire to get rid of things all the time. This is really ingrained. Anger comes, hatred comes, greed comes. It's like, no, I don't want to look at that. Bypassing, that word is a good one, right? Because we want to, we want to bypass. We want to grow, but we, don't, we want to know about the Four Noble Truths without suffering, right? We want to know about freedom, but we don't want to look at the jail yet, right? And, and, and to really wake up, you have to kind of go into the muck, this is also something I've learned a lot from traveling in South America and spending a year living with the Shipibo community, studying plants, understanding the shadows, embracing the dark, you know, the darkness, the unconscious. You know, we want pleasure. One of the uh, Sayadaw... Uh, Upandita, Sayadaw, Janaka, these are some Sayadaws, and they always would say, and Utajaniya was a teacher, he comes here, he's a beautiful teacher, he, always, he once sat down and gave a Dharma talk, he looked at about 200 people, he was in the upper hall, he said, pleasant, 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 all you want is pleasant, now is that fair? And we all laughed, right? We knew. No, it's not fair. We can't have pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. But somehow, we can get it right. You know, we think we can. So, a bodhisattva goes into hell realms, is willing to go into our own heart and mind, out of compassion. So, embracing the shadow is important. So here's the prayer that His Holiness the Dalai Lama says every morning, which I find very touching. He says, may I be a guide for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles, and for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and the sky until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. I just find that to be so, so sweet, that one would have that kind of mind to wake up every day and say that. So we don't have to be such a degree as that, but what can we do? What can we cultivate? Even just learning a little bit. Pema Chodron in her commentary on this was very realistic. She says, start where you are. Right? Where can we incline the mind to open a little bit more, to have more compassion? Dr. King, 
he would always, you know, give talks to people and they would say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, you know, and he would give these talks. And you might have heard this quote. He said, well, here, do this. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you do it to keep moving forward. That's wise advice. Whatever you do, just keep moving forward. And that means moving forward on our own path of healing and awakening and understanding. Keep moving forward. Be mindful of cultivating hatred, destruction, fear right now. The most important thing is to cultivate hope and to cultivate the heart of a bodhisattva that I'll keep going no matter what. Even if I'm crawling, I will keep going. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing a day long in downtown Oakland, and I had everyone go out on the street and do walking practice, and then they came back in. And there's a park near, we're near Lake Merritt, and there's a park called Snow Park, and a woman came in, and I just asked them to share how that was walking. You know, it was about 100 people, and I had them imagine smiley faces on the bottom of their feet, because Thich Nhat Hanh likes people to do walking meditation like that. So... You know, so I said, here you are, you're in urban jungle. Embrace it. Embrace the graffiti, the smells, or whatever you see while you're walking, right? This is it. This is where we are. This is the temple, right? And so they went out, and a woman came back in, and she said, oh, my God, I was so touched. She said she saw this man who was very, very ill. She went over to the park, and he was on a park bench, and he had a respirator, and he had a, like, a little oxygen thing. And she said he looked to be maybe 80 or 90 years old. And she said as she sat walking, or when she went back and forth, and she sat down a little bit on the grass, she saw that he was picking weeds, out of the grass and he was pulling out the little weeds and he had a huge pile and he would lean down that's doing something picking the weeds out of the grass thank you (laughs) right and I just was so touched by that and she had a lot of tears in her eyes sharing that story so the bodhisattva path um, you know we do what we can And uh, I also think of in our tradition, there's a lot of bodhisattvas. There's not only the Dalai Lama, but there's Thich Nhat Hanh, there's Aung San Suu Kyi. There's also uh, a great bodhisattva who died a few years ago, Maha Gosananda. His picture is in the Gratitude Hut. Uh, If you ever go over there, there's a beautiful picture. It was here. The picture was taken here. It was when the Dalai Lama came up. He saw Maha Gosananda. Maha Gosananda is called the Gandhi of um, Burma, Cambodia. He's just amazing. As he comes up walking, they both start bowing to each other, and they go all the way almost to the ground because each is trying to bow lower than the other to one another. And everybody looked and started weeping because they both were going farther, and they stayed down for a long time, just honoring their heads touching, right? Honoring two great bodhisattvas, yeah, who have endured so much. And there's a great book out about joy with Desmond Tutu in His Holiness, and two great bodhisattvas. Man, Desmond Tutu has held a lot in his life. So one of the things that I want to end this talk on is about joy and the joy of it. Because there's a time where we can get really battered down in the whole thing, right? And we think, I can't. I can't do this. 
And so I kind of got lost in a little bit of that. And then when I went back to reading this and listening to Pema Children's uh, commentary, I got excited. Where it was Chanti Deva was like, be excited about the challenge. Soar, have confidence. Do your uh, service or go about what you're doing with joy and perseverance, knowing that you are one of billions who are doing kind acts every day. You know, the world can look like it's really bad right now, and we miss that so many people are doing so many beautiful things everywhere. Right? We have to actually tune into that, tune into what's life-sustaining, uh, as well as other things. So the Dalai Lama, uh, I highly recommend you get that book because so many funny stories about all the suffering and then all the joy that they actually have at the same time. The joy in doing good. Do you know you could take joy out of doing kind things? That actually, that's a much higher joy than any other joy you could find. Find your joy in kind acts. Right? Don't sit your whole life away going, I, 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 me, me, me. We obsess on our issues, our defects that we perceive are there, our imperfections. Part of Shanti Deva's you know, teaching is find joy. Do one thing every day for someone and find the joy in it. Hug them, bless them care about them, say hi to a stranger, help a child, that if you just changed your practice to actually moving out instead of in, right? Sometimes we want the bypass that we all do, it's not just here, is that we secretly want to escape. I meet people who come into meditation practice all the time and go, um, Spring, can you help me get to the light or the rainbows? Or, uh, yeah. And I think, no, I don't teach that practice, and neither did the Buddha. <laughs> it's about being right here. We secretly go, oh, God, we want to meditate so we can get out. But that's not the path. It's through. Through the anger, through the hatred, through the restlessness, through the boredom, through the irritation, through the discomfort. It's not about getting rid of that. It's not about going, oh, I'm going to meditate it away. It's about, can I open to that feeling? And that's the third turning of the wheel, is using everything. Every single obstacle has a, a brilliance in it. And, um, and we can take heart in that with joyful perseverance. So my, my connection to seeing the joy now, understanding that it's the joy in the doing. I understand the book now by Desmond Tutu and, and Dalai Lama. It was like, just got it. Oh, this is how you all live your life. Even in the midst of the hell, you find the joy in what? Not the suffering, but in your ability to be there, to care, to try to alleviate it. There's a happiness in that. Someone's hungry. Oh, here you go. They're eating. I'm happy you're eating. How sweet. The joy is in your little act. That little act actually has ripples. So, so to find that is really important. That's kind of the heart of it all. And um, yes, yeah, so I want to make some time to ask questions. I wanted to just mention one thing about Maha Gosananda because, um, you know, the Gandhi of Cambodia, he was somebody who Jack had told me about for years, how he was looking at, met Mahago Sananda when he was in, he was very, he became very famous. 
but when he was just a monk and Jack didn't think of him as being anything unusual or special. So you don't have to be some big person. We're talking people who are us. That's what we're talking about, us. You don't have to be the Dalai Lama and go, well, that's him. Yeah, of course he thinks like that. You don't know my mind. No, we're all growing into that. Um, and later, he had met him in Cambodia and then came back later to visit Cambodia when he was older. And he was like, oh my gosh, I remember Mahagosananda when I was in this monastery. And he was just so simple, so shy, so quiet. And then he went on to be lead his people. And what he did was that all the people who were traumatized in the war, he brought them on foot back to their homes to reclaim their land. So all the people whose family members have been killed by the Khmer Rouge, all this brutality, they were all traumatized. And he said, no, we can't go in cars. I won't let that happen. We can't go on huge trucks. People just you know, crammed in. He said, we have to walk, and every day we will walk, and we will chant the Heart Sutra. We'll chant, hatred will never cease by hatred, but by love alone is healed, the Metta Sutra, and we will walk along and reclaim our land and our hearts. I just think that, and he did thousands of marches. I met this little monk, barefoot, bringing all, the, and holding all the suffering with a smile on his face, this joy of bringing all his people back to their homelands that had been decimated. I just thought, wow, I see why his holiness bowed like that. That's, that's quite a heart to want to do that. I mean, what do you want to do with your life here? Really think about this question. What matters to you? I like to ask every group I'm with now, what are you doing all day with your time? What do you value? Do you, you, know, you want to collect things? Well, that has some value, I suppose. <laughs> it's permanent and permanent, not going to last. But to look into what matters to you now. I think with every time of trial and tribulation, it clarifies where, are, where do you stand? Who are you? What do you want to express? Do you want to live your dharma? There's a movement going out of moving it into the world, right? Not just saying, I love, may all beings be happy, but looking at a being and going, oh, you're the all being. <laughs> Even those who are different than us, who hate us, so funny how I would say, may all beings, and then I would think of these groups and go, mm. And then while I was doing the meta retreat, I was like, all beings means all beings spring. You know, there's no one left out. This is a training. I'm not saying I'm there. This is my, this is my train. This is my goal. What are your goals? It's important to clarify that. So um, I just want to end this little talk and then on Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton once advised the young activist, do not depend on the hope of results. <laughs> you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no results. It may even perhaps bring about the opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. I believe that. You know, we just go forward. 
Try to alleviate suffering where we can. Try to care about others. This is not an intellectual practice. It has to be lived. Otherwise, it means very little unless we live it, the live the Dharma. The Dharma has to be alive in community, in spirit, embodied. And the only way you get to do that is by going out into the, into the rainbow world and, and brushing up against everything and going, oh, okay, yeah, hi, other being, how are you? Uh, okay, and seeing what that's like, working on our mind and keep uh, purifying to try to, to let go so, uh, okay, I would like to uh, offer a few moments of questions if people have them. I always like to do that, so be bold and brave. Even if you don't agree, you can say that. Yeah, that's okay. Hi, <laughs> Spring. Um, sometimes I bump up against that serenity prayer, you know, the about accepting the way things are and, you know, when I'm praying for the wisdom to know the difference between what you can change. And yeah. So I thought maybe if you could... Yeah, the, the serenity. Little. So you bump up against it. How do you respond to that? Depends on the situation, you know, so... Just, like, I guess the... Where do you check in when you feel like, okay, something's not the way you want it to be. Yeah. So, yeah. So how do you change things in it? The acceptance and then actually moving forward with change. Yeah. That's always a big piece right there. How do we embrace what is and then still go about cleaning up the mess? Yeah. With peace. (laughs) That's the key, right? We want to keep our peace of mind. Well, I think... I just trust my heart, and I think a lot of people go about doing all the work that they can. You know, I look at other teachers in my own life and myself in the serenity prayer. How can I, yeah, how can I just know, you know, things I can and change? Um, I just focus also on the good in people, that I really believe that in people's hearts they have Buddha nature. I believe that, even if it's obscured. That teaching alone helps me tremendously. So I focus on that. I look at people and think, wow, they're acting really crazy right now. They even might be violent or I could get harmed if I don't move out of the way or something. But I really believe in Buddha nature that everybody has a good heart and it's just obscured. Um, The Buddha's cousin is notorious in the sutras. Devadatta is his name. Have you heard that story? I'll tell you, this is a good one. Devadatta. Um, basically, uh, the Buddha ordained him, and he was, they were you know, under him for a long time. And then one day, Devadatta was like, he's really not all that. In fact, I'm going to um, you know, turn against him now. And that's what he did. He went and told all the Sangha, he's a liar, no good, leave, he's da da da. And so half of them went off with Devadatta. And then it, it got worse than that. Devadatta's like, I'm going to kill him. And so there was a wild, crazy elephant that everyone was terrified of. And uh, Devadatta somehow managed to get a group of them together to get it in this one area. Anyway, they let it go on a road where the Buddha was to try to 
stomp his cousin out, you know, kill him. But of course, the Buddha's powers, he waved his hand and did meta, and the, the elephant stopped and bowed and became like, you know, tamed. <laughs> As the, a lot of those kind of stories, actually, with animals. So then that wasn't enough. Devadatta was so angry that he didn't get killed like that, that he stalked the Buddha. The Buddha was doing walking meditation, and he went on a cliff, and he pushed a stone. And the Buddha moved out, but his toe got just slightly brushed his toe enough for one drop of blood to come out. And so what happened was the earth started quaking, and Devadatta fell into the earth, like immediate karma for harming a Buddha. And, and so the Buddha wasn't really mad. He was like, Devadatta, one day you will get enlightened, I swear. Kind of like that. It's the earth and he falls into a hell realm. And of course you don't stay in hell realms. These are, these are states of consciousness. To want to kill a Buddha is a hell realm. Your mind to be plotting that and then to actually do it. So, but he had no anger. People would yell at him, assault him, accuse him of things. And he just, he was like, okay, yeah. Like it didn't, so I, I, I feel like, and he kept going, right? He kept going, he kept going. So um, I'm not sure if that had anything to do with the serenity prayer, but I guess <laughs> I wanted to get that story out. <laughs> Maybe it was helpful. <laughs> Meaning we can forgive or something like that. But yeah, it's hard. Just trust your heart. Change what you can, which is just you. And then do well for others on their behalf. Alleviate the suffering in your environment. Try. That's all. That's what the Bodhisattva path is. Is to alleviate that suffering. Wake up to help grow inside so we can be more of service. That's great. I would have given up on my meditation path years ago if I hadn't thought about my community. My community always kept me going on months and months of retreat where I'd suffer and cry and go through all this stuff. I would think, oh, but what about the Oaklanders and the people in here in, the, in East L.A.? And then I would immediately sit up and go, I, I can do this. So I saw the strength that it can galvanize when you think of others. And if you can't think of others, do it for the trees. Right? Sometimes that motivates people. The cats in the world. They're like, no more cat abuse. I'm going to help. Right? Whatever it is, find that, that spark where it motivates something higher than you. You know what I mean by that? Where you think the water or the, the dolphins or people have the cause and that riles something up in them. That is bodhicitta. It's for the benefit of others. So, Yeah, other questions or comments? Thank you. Here in the front, yeah. So with, with the election, which I think the reference to six weeks, eight weeks, it's been a hard time. Yeah. I, I can be open to the people who made the decision, the people who voted, and, and it's opened up my eyes to what they've been through. Mm. But it's very difficult to look at the man that ended up on top. Right. With that same sort of compassion. And, <laughs> I get it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, I just think that they were s- tricked. And, and so there's more for me to look at. And I just thought if there's any specific about that loving kindness towards the people that won out. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
I think we just have to call on something higher that even when people are acting so unskillful or, or manipulating or lying or on any level in politics or anything, I think we still can use the energy, feel the rage and anger. I think it's important to, to feel it. People often squelch that. Like, that's not spiritual, right? I think we have to feel the immediacy of the, the, the frustration, allow ourselves to go into it and not suppress for a while. I think uh, I was with groups and I was like, yeah, let's yell, scream, right? I was allowing that energy to, ex- to go out, right? To, anger and hatred are different. This is what I've discovered. Anger is just energy, right? It's, we could actually use anger. It could be a catalyst for something positive. Hatred is different. Hatred is that where we actually cultivate that burn in the mind. I think you might be thinking, how do I deal with the hatred maybe? But the anger isn't so unskillful. We, we get open to that as on a tantric level, on a, on a uh, just a non-dual level as energy that can awaken things. It's a cry for justice, actually. That's what it wants. It wants a just world. It actually is an aspect of compassion in a way. When it's aimed at, we don't want to see other people harmed. Hatred is the burn in the mind that chews on that actively every day. And there's a lot of that right now on all sides. Just a burn, just seeing the person visualize, like just consuming a lot of our day. So that is creates a toxicity. And we have to realize too, if you read the guide of the Bodhisattva way of life, the Bodhisattva loves villains. <laughs> it loves enemies. It loves the, the fight, like you and me, and, and it thrives on it. Because in some way, in order to get our attention, we need suffering. <laughs> Shanti Deva says, right? And he tells a story about how his teacher would go into people's retreats and be cruel to them to test their patience. And the ones who start screaming and yelling, he's like, no, see, I just tested you. You failed another year retreat, you know. <laughs> and the ones that would laugh and go, you know, play with him while he was hurling insults. So, so there is a whole school of thought. It comes a lot from Tibetans that think, I will take all this pain and suffering and use it as fuel. How can we use this as fuel? This will be a catalyst moment. I've never seen more groups catalyzing now than ever. I mean, there's mass movement, like, woo, this is... So then we focus on that, like, yes, this opportunity for us to claim our love, our compassion, our justice, freedom, peace for the planet, green economies, new, new ideas, new inventions. We don't really know what will come out of it. But we use suffering, we don't try to get rid of it. We use that anger and hatred to wake up. What is it showing me? What could I wake up to? We don't have to get rid of it. We don't have to even pray it away. Open to it. That's the key of the, the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva opens to it. So that's, I hope that's helpful. That's what I'm trying to do. It's helping a lot. Because then I, I think, oh, right, you're going to help me grow up fast now. Thank you. You're going to help me rise up fast now. You're going to help me accelerate because I have to. And I probably would have been lazy if you hadn't showed up, right? I wouldn't have been so thinking about all these new things and projects that I, I really have always thought about. But now I'm going to do them. Thank you. You know, this is the thing. It's like we need a bullet to the, you know, 
So you look at it as your goal is to wake up, not be comfortable. See, this is the key. Get over the desire for comfort. It's a hindrance. And I'm not saying move out of your house or throw out your duvet blankets. I'm saying the, the constant wanting to be everything to be great, to look great. This is an epidemic in our culture. We always want everything to look pretty on the outside, right? You ask people how they are. I'm good. I'm fine. And then they're not, actually. They're not well. They're not good. So there is something about real freedom is looking at the real suffering we carry, you know? So, yeah. Maybe one more before we, if anyone else has one. And um, speaking, I just want to, and your point really quick about how we do that. This is the last thing I'll say. Uh, how we kind of make believe everything's okay all the time. So my friend, who is also a Dharma teacher, many of you might know Pascal Auclair from uh, uh, Canada. He lives in Montreal. He's a dear friend of mine for many years. So he had this brilliant awakening around uh, his friends and him. They were growing food. And so when you have an organic garden, you could get carrots that look like hearts. You get all kinds of wobbly-looking vegetables. Oh, you know, it doesn't look like what you get in the store necessarily. So, he, so he's in the store and he's like, wow, all these perfect bell peppers. How is this possible to have a whole, huge, they all look the same, no discoloration. This is, not human, this is not nature. And he's like, what do they do with the ugly bell peppers, right? He became curious because he thought there must be thousands, tons, right? So then he gets to the um, spaghetti aisle and he says, oh, they make sauce out of those peppers. And then on the cover of the sauce is a perfect looking bell pepper. (laughs) And he is like, this is what we do. This is delusion. And then I said, I got you because when I was at the store looking for picture frames, there was this perfect family in the frame that looked nothing like my family. <laughs> Nobody's that skinny. Nobody looks like that. No, we don't wear matching shirts. It's imp- but the idea that a family, you know? And so that is how we are. That, that's what we want. That's why. We want it to be like the perfect bell pepper, the perfect family. The desire, it's not. The, the, the teachings, the last thing, if I could leave you with, is the teachings of the Bodhisattva is the imperfection is the way. The brokenness is the way. The ugliness is the way. The shadow, the places that we reject become the liberating moments. The villains that we want to go, no, you're ruining my perfect life. Well, wake up. This is imperfection, right? It's brutal. It's like, no, I didn't want this. We thought our enlightenment was going to go the steady way uphill, right? Like this. We don't think we have to go all the way into the underworld, to the belly of the beast, to the hatred and the rage and the ignorance that we have to see or the confusion and the sorrow. But that's the direction it's going, right? It's like, wake up. It's brutal. But this is samsara. It is brutal. And there's some kind of wake-up in that that, that that these bodhisattvas are saying. This isn't pleasant, actually. It's about waking up freedom here. Use your time wisely 
it will end. It's an hourglass ticking. So we wake up and we get on the path because that's what matters and that's actually where happiness is. The end of the chapter, it's joy. It's the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu cracking up. They have seen more suffering, more horror, more... Every, I mean, I, their whole people have decimated. Yet, the joy is in the alleviation. Like, you know, it's in the act. So. so thank you all so much for listening to me. Go on and on and on. I hope you feel inspired by one word. Let's just try to do one kind thing for each other. Just go out of your way as a practice every day to just look at somebody, do one kind thing, and I swear your whole day will start to switch. And it ripples. That energy ripples. It creates a magic in the field. Uh, So you can give it a try. Thank you so much, everyone. May all beings be happy and peaceful and any goodness that comes tonight, maybe liberate, maybe offer it this merit for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.